Because here's the thing, I believe, Tim, we all have a voice within us that's crying out, that's screaming, that's begging us to make our unique contribution. When we come into a situation now where we're allowed to enable that voice to be a part of something that's bigger than us, there's real power in that. Welcome everyone to the Culture by Design podcast. I am excited to have with me today, Dr. Reggie Crane as my guest. Let me tell you a little bit about Reggie. It's an an incredible background. So Reggie is a retired Air Force Chief Master Sergeant. Now, Reggie, let me just ask you, I never served in the military, but my understanding is that that is the the highest enlisted rank that you can achieve. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, About 1% of the enlisted personnel rise to that rank. Mm -hmm. So that that says a lot about who you are, but there's more that I want to share with with listeners. Reggie is also a former Booz Allen Hamilton organizational development consultant and went on to found Next Level Coaching and Consulting and also a workforce development program manager for the Air Force Technical Application Center. There's so much here. I'm not going to go into all the detail because some of that's going to come out in our conversation, but he earned a, a bachelor's degree in management and organizational development, and then a master's degree in adult education and a doctoral degree in organizational leadership. And we could go on and on, but Reggie, welcome to the podcast. I'm so grateful to have you. My pleasure, Tim, and thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you and I, we got to know each other a little bit just over the last few months. And sometimes you meet someone and you get to know a little bit about them. And immediately you say to yourself, I need to know your story. Mm. Right. And that's how I felt about you. Immediately, I said to myself, I need to know Reggie's story. I need to, I want to know where this man is coming from and and how he got to this place. So let's talk a little bit more about your story, if if you don't mind. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Let's see. I uh, grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, I spent quite a bit of time in New York City. I was my, my grandfather's first male grand grandkid, right? And so during the summers, uh, he'd send for me to come to New York and I, he's a minister. So I got a chance to spend quite a bit of time with him, just watching how he walked through life. And that was really great because it helped me as I was moving through my childhood. Like every other child, you know, I was a bit mischievous at certain times, but there was always this line that I wouldn't cross because I would not want my granddad uh, to find out about it. So it kind of kept me in check. Uh, but I grew up in Jacksonville, um, you know, average student, uh, not really mm-hmm. burning up the grades, GPAs, um, got into junior high school, really kind of got interested in music and drums. And so through my junior high school years and senior high school years, I was in the band. I had a scholarship to go to uh, FAMU uh, for music. I went down for the summer and I kind of saw how they treated the folks in the band at FAMU. They were like gods. And I said to myself, I didn't have the maturity 
to go to college and be in the band and, and, and do what I needed to do. So I had a buddy who had joined the Air Force. Uh, he came home one summer. He had a pocket full of money, a brand new car, and some really incredible stories to tell. Yeah. And he said, uh, here's, the, here's the thing, Rich. He said, uh, they can yell at you. They can scream at you. They can talk about your parents, but they can't hit you. <laughs> right? Mm. So once I realized that there was no, no physical involvement, I said, let me go ahead and join. Right. And so really, so you, you, it was a big pivot for you and you changed course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, I, I knew what my, my self-discipline was not. And uh, I knew that I really wasn't ready to go to college and be in a band, especially a FAMU band where they were really, really good. For our listeners, Reggie, clarify FAMU. Oh, I'm sorry, Florida A&M University. Okay. They are, are famous for having uh, the Marching 100 and they travel around the world performing. And so it's kind of like you know, being in a rock band to a certain degree. And so my discipline wasn't where it needed to be. And so uh, I, I thought I needed to go someplace where there was a little bit more structure uh, so I could grow up a little bit. But what's interesting, Reggie, is that you didn't just drop out, but you chose something that represented more discipline, more rigor, more structure, more process. You signed up for that. Yeah. Now, now Tim, with all due respect and in total transparency, <laughs> I didn't know what I was really saying. Okay, that's fair <laughs> enough. Right, you're 18, 19 years old. Yes. Okay, so you go into the Air Force. Yeah, and I get in and, um, you know, I get through basic training. And that was a kind of stressful time for me because I didn't know what to expect. I didn't have any family members I could turn to to say, what's this like? And so I make it through that. And then from there, I go on to what they call technical school, where now you go to learn the job that you'll be doing in the Air Force. Right. My first job, I was a Morse code operator copying dits and dies. And my first assignment was San Vito, Italy, near Brindisi. So, Reggie, you may need to translate Morse code for our millennial listeners. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah, taking us are, back a little bit, right? Yeah, you are so right, man. I um, Way back in, when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, right, the, the way that uh, some of the folks in the military communicated was by a system of sounds, like dits and da's put together to create letters. And yeah. those letters created words. Do you remember uh, what A was? Did I? <laughs> it's it was probably still, it's still up here, isn't it? I mean, it was so programmed, Tim. It's like there was a time when I would be driving through like maybe Texas, right, where there wouldn't really be a good radio signal. And you'd hear mm -hmm. some of that stuff in the background. And I'd find myself sitting in the car driving, right, listening to those sounds and kind of sounding out the words that were coming across. It was, it was really incredible. So that was your your technical training. Yes. And that led you into your first job. Okay, now let me let me ask you this question. My sense is that when people go into the military, no one really knows fully what they're getting into. Exactly. It's impossible. Yeah. But once you get in, you go through basic training, at some point you do know what you signed up for yes. and you have to make the second choice and the second choice is will I stay? Yes. And so when did that ha happen for you? You looked around, you said, I understand this. I know what it's like. I understand the experience. I know what I signed up for. I think I'm going to stay a while. 
it happened for me, Tim, on my second enlistment. When I got to the end of my first enlistment, I realized I hadn't made any plans. Which was how long? Four years. Four years. Yeah. And so I said, well, I, I just can't go out and do nothing. And so I signed up again. Well, when I signed up this time, I ran into a supervisor, probably the first supervisor I ever had that really sat me down because I was still playing music. I was finding ways to get in jazz bands on the weekends and still keep my my drumming going because I still loved it so much. And this guy sat me down one night and he said, "Um, I'm going to tell you something, man, that may not sit well with you. And what I'm going to say to you is that you have a lot of potential. Mm-hmm. You can do some really great things in this Air Force, but you got to make a decision. Either it's going to be the music or it's going to be the job. If you choose the job, I will let you grab my coattail and I will teach you every single thing that I know. And so I went home that night and I had some soul searching to do because uh, nobody, nobody ever spoke to me like that about, you know, making that kind of decision about giving up music to focus on the work. Mm-hmm. And so after a couple of days, I went back to him and I said, OK, I'm all in. And he proceeded to just teach me so much, man, that I had no idea was there to learn. And that really set the foundation for how I went through the remainder of my career. That is amazing. We'll consolidate a lot of years here, Reggie. But how long did you serve? Uh, 30 years. 30 years. Yes. And so I have to say on behalf of myself and all listeners, we, we deeply appreciate your devoted service. We have to say that. Yeah, we really mean that. Let me ask you another question. In the 30 years, certainly there were milestones along the way, but can you think of, uh, I think we all have these, a breakthrough experience during that time that catapulted you forward in terms of your confidence? Yeah, a defining I, experience. I think for me, it was when I went away to a non-commissioned officer's academy. And this is a school where they send you off to refine your management skills, to refine your supervisory skills. And the idea is that you go in and you embrace this, this information and you come back to your base and then you apply it in your respective organizations. Mm-hmm. I had gone and... I was sitting there and just taking in all this, I mean, phenomenal information, right? And I just kind of started thinking to myself, what if I can go back to the organization and apply this? And so I did. And I started to be pulled up into positions that exceeded my grade because the commanders realized the value that I was bringing. And I was in, I was stationed in Germany at this time. And so I left Germany and I went to Spain. And what happened when I left Germany and went to Spain is my commander in Germany wrote a letter to my gaining commander in Spain. And he said, look, whatever the most difficult work is you have there to do, give it to this guy. No matter what the grade requirement is, give it to this guy, but this guy will deliver for you. And I got there not knowing this guy had written this letter. And my new commander calls me in the office and he says to me, I got this letter about you. And he said, I was somewhat suspect about it. He said, but then I saw this decoration that came in for you. This decoration is normally reserved for people much senior than you in grade. And he said, when I got the decoration, 
I believe the letter. It makes it sense. They went together. Yeah, this guy put me in a position, man, where I was in charge of leading a team to close this entire organ installation down because the base was drawing down. I led that entire team. And when I left that place, Tim, I just felt like, you know, there's probably nothing that I can't do if I sit down and kind of put my mind to it because everything has a process. And all you have to do is sit down, understand the process, and then be able to communicate with people around you to ensure everybody is on the same page. And you can do pretty much anything that comes before you. And so for me, that was a breakthrough moment for me because I think what happened, Tim, is that somebody saw something in me that I had not yet seen in myself. I didn't lack confidence. But I didn't see what those people saw to put me in positions to do the kind of work they put me in a position to do. So, Reggie, this takes us to the area of professional activity and expertise that you've been investing in now for many years. So you spent 30 years. Now, maybe not at the very beginning, but how many of those years did you spend leading other soldiers, training other soldiers? Yeah, probably about 22 22 of those years. Yes. So if there's someone that understands how to build culture, that's going to be you. You can tell us a lot about that as a practitioner on the ground, in the trenches, with other soldiers all over the world. So let's talk about what you have termed uh, shared meaning. So help us understand what shared meaning means to you and why this matters so much on teams and in organizations. So I'm assuming that this is the product of all of your experience and your experience keeps taking you back to this concept over and over and over again. You see that it's vitally important. It's so critical and people struggle with it. Yeah. So what is it? What, what is shared meaning? The idea is that we realize that we have different values, different beliefs. Uh, we come from different places. And so when we communicate, we have to have some kind of a, an agreement, right? Some kind of a coming to a, a commonality of how we are going to address each other. How are we going to use terms? How are we going to approach each other as we try to work together? Because, you know, when I joined the Air Force, for the first time in my life, I was around so many different kinds of people who didn't look like me, who didn't talk like me, who didn't sound like me. And as I moved from base to base, that never changed. It was always the same. Yeah. And I, I would sit down sometimes and we'd be in meetings. I'd hear the person leading the meeting and they'd come in and, and they could use the, the king's language and, and can, can, can articulate words. But when the meeting was over, there'd be people walking outside saying, what was that about? I mean, I, I don't quite get what they said. They weren't connecting. Yeah, exactly. It was as if there was this, these words that were put out there in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And everybody sitting in that room didn't grasp those words the same way, didn't grasp the understanding of the intent behind those words, didn't capture the meaning of why we were sitting in that room. And that would require 
multiple side conversations to finally get to a point where, okay, we get it. I finally get it. So what I'm hearing, Reggie, is that it's both intellectual and emotional. Absolutely. I need to know what you're saying cognitively. I need to be able to process it. I need to conceptually, it needs to make sense, but it's also emotional as well because there's got to be rapport. There's got to be alignment. There's got to be commitment. So it's the thinking brain and the feeling brain coming together. Is that, is that part of what? Absolutely. Because if we're going to work together, right. You know, and and we're going to do good work together, then we have to be able to say, okay, these things are important to me. These are my value systems. These are my beliefs. These are the things that I live by. So what are the things that you live by? What do you believe? What do you think? What do you want? Right. And we get all of those things kind of sorted out. And so now we've got a foundation, a joint foundation that we didn't have before we sat down and focused on having these conversations about getting on the same page right. in terms of what things are important to me and what things are important to you. So, Reggie, you probably encountered many situations where people have these vast differences, vast differences in demographics and psychographics and cultural attributes. Absolutely. And they don't really want to create shared meaning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if we're similar demographically and psychographically, that similarity naturally creates affinity, right? We, we, there's so much common ground. Absolutely. But if we, if we don't have that and we're very, very different, then perhaps my motivation to build a bridge is not very high. And so you probably saw this time and time again, where people are not motivated to create the shared meaning that becomes the foundation for them to work effectively together. So what did you do? That's a really, really great question, right? And what I realized was one of the things that precludes people from really wanting to become motivated around this shared meaning is a lot of times we don't have clarity about what we're connected to. So, so what does that mean? I was in an organization and every organization has a mission statement. It's like flashing and, and, and neon lights everywhere you go. Everybody can recite it by heart. But when I did my bachelor's degree, I got permission to go out into the and, and visit about five or six different corporations. And I stood below the mission statement. And every other person came by, paused and said, excuse me, ma'am, excuse me, sir. Can you tell me what the mission statement is? You see, yeah, right, right behind you right there. I said, no, can you tell me what it means to you? Yeah, what it says. I said, no, can you tell me what it means to you, what, what it says? And so as I, as I gathered that data and I came back to my organization, I did the same thing. And they said, yeah, what it says. I said, okay, so here's the thing, right? We're going to sit down and we're going to take this mission statement. And what we're going to do is we're going to figure out how we fit into that mission statement. Because what we're going to do is we're going to create a mission statement for your particular functional area. And so we asked two questions. The, the, the first question was, why is what you do relevant to the people that you provide a product or service to? Why is that relevant? It's got to be relevant because you're doing it. And if, it's, if you don't know why it's relevant, you can become irrelevant really quickly, right? So connect yourself personally to that. Personally to it, right? And so once we went through and they, and they sat down, and this was a really interesting drill because every one of those people said, for the first time in my entire life, I have never thought about why what I do is relevant. Mm-hmm. And so once they understood the relevance of 
their function, now it became a whole lot easier to sit down and have a conversation about if this is what makes you relevant now, the next question is, what kind of things do you believe you have to do or do differently to either maintain or enhance that relevance in the future? You know, this makes me think of, Reggie, is that if you look at the employee engagement research, there are several factors that drive employee engagement. For example, do you like your boss? Yeah. Do you have the resources that you need to do your job? Many things. But the number one factor, the most powerful driver of employee engagement is the meaning and the purpose that you find in the work itself. And so what I hear you saying is that you're trying to help people connect themselves with the mission of the organization and the vision. And that then provides meaning and purpose. It does. And the third crown jewel is once they understand what it is that makes them relevant today, and they can sit down and talk about what kind of things they need to do to either maintain or enhance that relevance going forward. Now the million dollar question comes into play. How are you going to agree that you're going to treat each other as you maintain your current relevance and move towards your future relevance? So what values are you going to develop that you're going to live by, that you're going to embrace, that you're going to hold each other accountable for to help you to be able to leverage your current relevance and move towards your future relevance. So we're talking about how. We're talking about how. Absolutely. And we're talking about defining the terms of engagement. Absolutely. And I, what I hear you saying is that we've got to be explicit about that. We've got to make a personal commitment to that. We can't do that by default. We need to do it by design. We need to be intentional about it, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so let's go back to creating the shared meaning. How else do you do that? One of the things that I use is, uh, Urian Fisher talks about this in Getting to Yes, right? Defending positions versus uh, working from a shared interest perspective. And so when we, we talk about values, right, organizational values, if I say customer service is a value to me and you say customer service is a value to you and we leave it at that, you and I could potentially walk through the organization treating customer service in very, very different ways mm. and still believing that we're embracing customer service. So Because we agree to it in concept. In concept, Right. But we haven't, we haven't taken the next step, right, to say, okay, what does customer service mean to us? And so everybody on that team gets a sticky and they sit down and they write. Customer, for customer service to be alive and well in this organization, this has to be a part of that equation. And so I get all of those inputs in, right? And we start to affinitize them and they create themes. And so now we get these themes and what we realize is that more people in that room have said similar things than people who have said different things. And also now what we understand is that we've created a space where people in that room have now said to themselves and they can see, oh man, yeah, you and I see it the same way. Oh yeah, okay, okay. 
So now it's a matter of when we craft this value, we craft this value now based on having created this, this foundation of shared meaning and understanding about what that value means. So when that value is, is developed and the behaviors associated with it are developed, there has been shared meaning, shared understanding, and shared contribution towards making that happen because everybody was involved in its development. So what I'm hearing, Reggie, is that shared meaning can only come out of shared participation. So you're democratizing the participation. And I think you're answering a question that I'm hearing all the time, especially for new folks that are moving into the workforce. And they're asking this question, is there a voice with that job? That's the question. And that may be the single most important question that many people are asking as they're contemplating a new job. Is there a voice with that job? What I And so what you're saying, Reggie, is there's a voice with that job. A voice comes with that job. Let's get to, let's get to work. And this is how we're going to create shared meaning. And then the shared commitment comes as a natural consequence. Is Absolutely. that what happens? Absolutely. Because, you know, I, I tell this to the story where when I first got introduced to, to vision, it was a story about, you know, all of the, the elders in the organization would go up to the mountaintop and stay 35, 40 days, wouldn't shave, wouldn't bathe, and they come back down to the to the foothills and, and, and they got the tablets and they said, this is the organizational vision, and they give this rallying, motivating cry, and it's great for the moment. But then when that's over, it's left hollow because it's right. nothing below it, right? And so it is so important because here's the thing. I believe, Tim, we all have a voice within us that's crying out, that's screaming, that's begging us to make our unique contribution. Yes. When we come into a situation now where we're allowed to, to enable that voice to be a part of something that's bigger than us, there's real power in that. But when we come into a situation and we don't allow that voice to come into the equation as a business, we could be losing out on some incredible potential by not allowing that voice to come into the mix. So Reggie, when I hear you say this, I'm, I'm almost bewildered. I'm disoriented a little bit because here is a 30-year veteran of the U.S. Air Force, a chief master sergeant who was deeply socialized for 30 years in a command and control structure, in a hierarchical environment, and you're telling me this? So I'm, I'm, I'm a little blown away by this. And this comes back to, to who you are. So let me ask you a related question, because your tour, your tour of duty took you all over the world. Yes. Undoubtedly, you worked with, encountered, met some people some folks, some people who are tough nuts to crack, where it was very difficult to create shared meaning. They didn't want to. They were not motivated. Perhaps they cherished the status quo. Perhaps they had status. Perhaps they had positional power, whatever it was. What did you do personally to crack them open? Because one of the gifts that I think you have is an uncanny, unusual ability to create rapport. But I would like to know what you did, because I know that you worked with a lot of people that we would put into that category. 
I think you're right, Tim. And, and I'll be totally transparent with you. There were a couple of folks who were senior to me in the organization that I was not able to 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 get to because they were grounded in that position of power. Yeah, that uh, was almost a threat to to their livelihood. So they weren't trying to hear what I had to say. But for the folks that were working with me and for me, something happened that really caused me to maybe practice empathy before I really understood what empathy was. Let me cut you off again, and then you yes, can sir. finish. But again, you're surprising me because a chief master sergeant is talking to me about empathy and I'm kind of shaking my head and I'm saying, hang on. That's <laughs> so, 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 Tim, let me, let me do this. Yeah, Tim. Keep going. <laughs> I, I think, there, I think there's something here that's important to bring into the mix right now, because you, you make a great point. And I tell you when I, uh, this was 19, it's 1993, late 80s, early early 90s. I wasn't aware of a whole lot of things beyond what I had as Reggie Crane in the Air Force. And I got to this, this base where I got introduced to, um, big in the Air Force was total quality management, right? It caused me to not try to assess anybody else. It really caused me to think about how are you showing, how are you showing up, right? And how are you, you know how you think you're showing up, but how are you really showing up? And I realized there were some ways that I was showing up that really wasn't consistent with who I was or the person I wanted to be. I was showing up that way because I believe I had to show up that way to get certain things done. But what I realized was I can show up differently and be even more effective than I was just showing up naturally as Reg Crane with nothing else to kind of work with. And so Reggie, I, what, what, what I hear you saying is that you cannot know if you're showing up the way you want to show up unless you know what your values are in the first place. Bingo, bingo, bingo. Right? Yeah. How are you going to know? That's, that's, a great, that's a great point. That's a so, great so here's a related question because what I, I think a thread that I, that I see through all of this, this entire conversation is that you have had, you have also been on a journey of self-awareness mm. throughout your career because you can't be effective in creating shared meaning unless you know how your behavior is influencing other people, what your patterns are in order to get better. So have you worked on that? Do you do systematic reflection? Do you solicit input and feedback? Are you... Do you spend time in, in trying to understand yourself in self-awareness exercises? I have to. I've got people that I go to on a consistent basis who have my best interests at heart. Yeah. But they also realize that they can be brutally honest with me. And I might not like it, but we're still going to love each other. And I'm going to take that information okay. better. So, so Reggie, this is something that I hope all the listeners are listening to. So you have a kitchen cabinet of people and you have a very high tolerance for candor with them and they can give you the unedited truth. They can give you the un, unvarnished feedback that you probably wouldn't get from others because you know their motives. Yeah. You know that they have your best interest at heart. So you've done that. Yes. I've had to because here's the thing, Tim. I, I believe this work that I'm doing right now 
is why I came to, why I showed up on the planet, right? I mean, that may sound a little hokey-ish, but I believe the work that I'm doing is directly the reason why the good Lord let me show up on the planet. Mm. And I, I owe that work, the work that needs to be done to do it effectively. Yeah. And when I talk to people, one of the, the comments I get a lot from people when I do workshops is that they say, man, you know, I, I really believe what happened in this room today. I really, I really believe what you were saying. I really believe you believe what you were saying, right? And I said, I do. And I think that if you can't authentically show up that way, I think it does a disservice, man, to the people that are in that room. And so I, I, I feel that I'm showing up as authentically as I can. I don't strive to be perfect at all, but I, I strive to make sure that when I can make those incremental modifications and changes in terms of how I show up to be more effective in terms of engaging people and getting them to see and understand the benefit of being able to engage people themselves, that's what I'm striving for, to make sure that when I show up in a space and I talk about communication effectiveness and we talk about that's about establishing dialogue that produces shared meaning and understanding. And here's how we go about doing that. I want people to understand there's real value in sitting down and giving this a shot in terms yeah. of trying to make sure that we're doing the best that we can. So, Reggie, why are you so animated about this? Why are you so committed to this? Why does it go? Why does it run so deep for you? You know, Tim, <laughs> if you look at this model behind my head, it says organizational communication and effectiveness, right? This, is, this model has like five key areas in it. It's my core signature leadership program. I was doing this workshop. It's a week-long workshop. And I was doing this for about three or four years. And then one day it hit me man, you call this the organizational communication and effectiveness model, but most of the work you're doing is organizational effectiveness, man. Where's the communication piece, right? And so when that hit me, I said, because everybody was enjoying the workshop, but I knew there was something missing. And so when I realized what it was, and I started talking to my friends about it, one friend said, look, Reg, you know I love you like a brother, man. But I'm tired of hearing this thing about communication. He said, he said, you got the GI Bill, right? I said, yeah. He said, once you go get a doctorate degree, man, and figure it out. Then folks are a whole lot smarter <laughs> than I am that can either let you know you're on to something or yeah. you're not on to something. Yeah, yeah. So thought about it and that's exactly what you did. And luckily, I found this professor, Dr. Marguerite Chabot. She taught motivational theories. All the other professors I was talking to about my communication effectiveness theory, <laughs> they were saying, look, man, leave that alone, man. There's, there's, there's nothing there, right? But Dr. Chabot said, hmm, you got to really do some work here, Reggie, but I think you might be on to something. And so when she said that, I said, okay, I'm all in now. And then she agreed to be my dissertation chair. And I tell you, Tim, that was the best thing I ever done because when I defended that dissertation and shared that theory, I don't even know how to describe the feeling, man. But I knew that it was fulfilling a part of the work that I needed to do. And so <clears throat> it was a great moment, right? And so now that I've got that, and I'll tell you something else, man, I, I figured it out, but the conversation you and I had, and here's the thing, the initial conversation you and I had where uh, you said, look, Reg, 
it's a lot of stuff here, man. But you got to cut your arm off and your leg off, and you got to do these things, right? Tim, when you said that, I knew you had walked across the burning sands. You didn't have to say any more than that. I knew exactly what you were talking about, man, because I knew you had been through it. I came back that night and I went through everything. And I even got a little deeper into the model now where as opposed to, you know, there being self-awareness, interpersonal relationships and team effectiveness around the bottom of the model. Now around the bottom of the model is going to be empathy, connection and assertiveness. Because those are the three elements that are necessary to be able to effectively achieve shared shared meaning and understanding to be able to have these dialogues that produce that shared meaning and understanding. So, so the journey wasn't over. I mean, it might not be over now, but you have contributed, man, immensely to this work just based on that brief conversation you and I had because I knew exactly what you were talking about. Well, I can't take any credit for that. But I'm amazed at what you've done. I'm amazed at your journey. Let me ask you a couple of questions as we conclude, Reggie. First one is, I like this question a lot. Tell us about one of your most spectacular professional failures (laughs) and what you learned from it. Isn't it true? We all have a resume of failure somewhere. We just don't take it out. We don't show it to anybody, but we've got it. So if you're okay about sharing something that would be on that resume of failure and then help us understand what you learned. Absolutely. When I started my business up on my own, when I left Booz Allen and moved to Florida, I was doing a lot of pro bono work. This one particular team led by this uh, professional consultant, they said, look, uh, we need somebody to work through the conflict workshop for us. But I said, look, I work with the TKI, the Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode Instrument. I'm not familiar with your instrument. Now, I'm familiar with conflict in general. And they said, well, look, don't worry about it. As long as you understand the basics of it, if you find yourself in trouble, we'll step in and give you a hand. I said, okay, fine. I'll come and do it, right? So I said, what I'll do is if I find myself in trouble, I'll ask for a lifeline, right? And so that'll be a cue to come and give me a hand. So I got up on the stage and I was humming through for the first hour. I got into the second hour and the material got a little bit unfamiliar to me. And so I sent up one lifeline, got nothing. I sent up another lifeline, got nothing. I sent a flare up, right? I got nothing. And I was left there to flounder. I wasn't so angry because I didn't do well. I was really upset because the people sitting in that audience, man, that was their shot to come in and get this conflict information. And I messed it up for them. And so when I when I finished the workshop, I said, look, uh, don't pay me. And I really don't understand what happened here today. But I'm going to own this because I probably should have done my diligence. And I, and I realized that what I did is I extended trust when there was no trustworthiness established. And so I told myself in that moment that that would never happen again. And so I've kind of lived by that now that before you go out and open your mouth up on a stage, you be clear about what you want to say in the beginning, 
You be clear about what you're going to say in the middle, and you be very clear about what you're going to say in the end. And you make sure that you can represent that material as well as you possibly can on your own and don't depend on anybody else to help you in those situations. Yeah, that's a wonderful experience. I got. I have a related question for you, Reggie. If we consider our our society today, it's um, it's become more polarized, more divisive. We're struggling to be civil and courteous and respectful. And so, I'm wondering if you can offer a very just one practical tip or suggestion about improving the culture, improving the dialogue, improving the level of trust that we give each other. Because we're, we're, we're in an environment where it's becoming more acrimonious and distrustful. And it's, it's absolutely not necessary. We know that we have differences. All the more reason to learn how to navigate those differences, but maintain the respect as we're doing it. So do you have anything practical, a practical tip or suggestion or tool that you could leave us with? I'm just big, Tim, on this word empathy, man. I mean, being able to suspend our respective versions of reality and allow ourselves to see the world through somebody else's eyes. And I think that what happens a lot is we confuse the word empathy with sympathy, right? And so it's like, well, I feel I feel sorry for Tim because Tim's dog passed away the other day. That's sympathy, right? But for me to show empathy, you know, I, I said, Tim, I I saw you come in yesterday and look a little different. Uh, everything okay? And you say, yeah, well, my dog passed away, right? And and I said, well, that that it seems like that really is impacting you in, in a significant way. Uh, almost like a family member that, that, that you lost. And you say, yeah. And, and I said, well, how's that landing with you, Tim, in terms of, you know, just where you are right now? And I try to create this space where I can, not having a pet, but I can really see the world through your eyes so I can gain a greater appreciation of precisely what you're feeling and why you're feeling it. There's such such power in, in that, that I think if, if we just allowed ourselves to understand the value of it and to realize that, you know, we're all pretty much in the same boat here. I mean, yeah, we're divided, you know, even the, in the division, if we sat down and really talked to each other and listened to each other, we'd find, in my opinion, that we have more in common than we have that divides us up. And that would allow us to be able to become a bit more cohesive and respectful in terms of how we walk through the walk through life. And even if we have disagreements to continue, we can manage that, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Because empathy is not about me agreeing with you. It's about me just suspending my version of reality and just seeing the world through your eyes so I can get it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so true. So Reggie, can you do that virtually? Let's think about this for a minute because we have millions of people that are working virtually. And with the pandemic, we're two years into this. They feel isolated. They feel alone. They feel disconnected. Can you do that virtually? I think it's a little tougher, Tim, but I think it can be done. 
but I, but I think you've got to really authentically want to do it. Right? Yeah. I think sometimes when we're face to face, things are a little easier for us to do and we don't have to work as hard at it sometimes. But I think when you're virtual, because you're talking about looking at somebody through a screen, right? And I, I think you really have to, to focus on it and work on it and realize that maybe you got to find some ways to do it a little differently than you do it if you were sitting in front of somebody face to face. I think that's a good point. I think you're right. I suspect that empathy travels through technology. Yeah. I think it travels in bits. It can be converted into bits. Yeah. And that you can get it on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not going to be as good as a face-to-face encounter, human-to-human. Nothing can match that. Yeah. But there's sure a lot that we can do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So here's my final question for you, Reggie. And thanks so much for your, for your time. If you could tell the world one thing, what would it be? It's my, it's my desire, right, to make this communication effectiveness theory a worldwide accepted way of engaging and dialoguing with people, right? And so I would say never stop trying to communicate with people whom you need to communicate with. Because if you keep trying, whether or not you have any kind of theory to use, if you keep authentically trying, you're gonna make progress. And you may not get to where you wanna be, but you sure won't be where you are if you just keep authentically trying to communicate with people that you need to communicate with. And when you say authentic, so much of that comes back to intent, doesn't it? To Absolutely. motive. Absolutely. 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 So it's about, and one of the principles in the communication effectiveness theory, right, is intentionality. The other one is authenticity. And then the other is respect. Having clarity about why do I, why do I want to talk to Tim, right? And so when I tried to, when I looked, reached out to engage with you, my intention was, I heard you in that certification say, this four stages of psychological safety is a result of my dissertation, right? When I heard that, my ears perked up, man. So I said, my intentions are to talk with Tim and try to understand what his thinking was. And I want to authentically show up as I am as somebody who's trying to do the right thing. And I want to make sure that I'm going to be respectful of him in his time. Well, Reggie, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for coming on to the podcast and spending some time with us. Uh, more importantly, thank you for uh, your life's contribution, your life's work, your life's body of, of knowledge. Thank you for caring about people and being a builder and an architect of culture. Mm. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for the invite and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining me today on the Culture by Design podcast. Be sure to subscribe and listen to new episodes every week. And if you'd like to see more of the work we're doing, go to leaderfactor.com.